Welcome to the Republican Professor today. If you're feeling discouraged, sad, if you're feeling like you're not sure if there's hope for the future, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling disoriented, we're glad that you're here today with us because that's the focus of this podcast is to provide a resource of community and training uh, to make the world a better place, a little bit better than when we found it. And that is the very small goal that we have, but we do feel like it is uh, worth doing and that it's possible. Today we have a special guest we have Lawrence Van Dyke, again, who is a judge, a federal appellate judge in California on the Ninth Circuit. This is the third part on public health and the Constitution, focusing on not only the Bill of Rights, but the enumerated rights uh, in the Second Amendment, and uh, those would be the rights to keep arms and to bear arms. Here's Judge Van Dyke joining us in his judicial writing, his opinion for the court, his concurring opinion, I should say, excuse me, in McDougal versus County of Ventura filed January of 2022, here's Judge Van Dyke on the Ninth Circuit, page 46. Judge Van Dyke concurring in his own judgment. I agree wholeheartedly with the majority opinion, which is not terribly surprising since I wrote it. But I write separately to make two additional points. The first is simply to predict what happens next. I'm not a prophet, but since this panel just enforced the Second Amendment, and this is the Ninth Circuit, this ruling will almost certainly face an unbunk challenge. <clears throat> this prediction follows from the fact that this is always what happens when a three-judge panel upholds the Second Amendment in this circuit. And then he gives a block of examples citing just that, that I just showed the viewers. If you're listening, you won't be able to see that, but you can just go click on the link and see it for yourself on page 46. Our circuit has ruled on dozens of Second Amendment cases and without fail has ultimately blessed every gun regulation challenged. So we shouldn't expect anything less here. Now, I'm going to stop here for a sec and comment. This is me. Okay. Um, what he's not telling you there is something that you could easily find out with a little digging on your own or 
since this is the Republican Professor podcast, you can just wait for me to point it out. But what he just said is there's a history of challenging gun regulations that are made by politicians in the name of the government working for the people. And the laws have historically been challenged by individuals, okay? So it's the individual versus the government. And in each case, the, the, the individuals are challenging criminalization of innocent conduct in the name of public safety, in the name of uh, the police power of the state. Public health falls under the police power of the state, just like public safety does. So that's why there's a link here with the public health panic restrictions uh, of 2020 and 2021. Um, but what Van Dyke is not telling you here is that in each case that the Second Amendment was upheld, and it was upheld um, a handful of times in recent decades uh, by the three-judge panel. What happened? Let me just really quickly um, tell you there's a district court. That's the trial court. That's where there's a bench trial or there's, a, you know, if it's a criminal case, it's a jury trial. And the, the district court judge uh, usually has a pretty thick ruling. Uh, there's findings of fact. I mean, if it goes all the way through, there's findings of fact. There's, um, there's of course, the decision, the application of the law. <clears throat> That could be, you know, usually it's like 100 pages or more. Every uh, decision that's rendered at the trial court gets an appeal. So whether you, uh, of course, if you won, you wouldn't appeal. But if, if you lose, you can appeal. So either side can appeal and you for sure get one appeal at least. Uh, beyond that, uh, it's up to the discretion of the appellate court, whatever it is, if it's the en banc or if it's the Supreme Court, the, the next level of appeal is up to the discretion of the whatever court it is. So we're talking about California. So we're talking about the Ninth Circuit in, in, um, <clears throat> in the cases that arise regarding California law. And the you know uh, so he saw what he's saying is um, the first level appeal is a three judge panel. It's it's in the Ninth Circuit. It's a three judge panel that's supposed to be uh, drawn randomly. I think it's a computer or something like that, and I think it is random. Um, that's the only reason I could think that the Ninth Circuit would have like three Republicans on, on the panel. And sometimes that happens where there's two or three Republicans on the panel. And what they do is they review uh, everything that the district court did. And then they either uphold it or they send it back or they uphold it in part and, and reverse it in part. 
And what, what Van Dyke is saying here on page 46 is that there's a number of times that the three judge panel got the right answer. But what he's not saying is that every single time that happened, it was Republicans on the Ninth Circuit three judge panel that got the right answer. That's what he's not saying. And there's a second part to that. What he's saying is every time that the three judge panel, so the, the first appeal got the right answer on the second amendment, it was overturned by the en banc panel, which is all the active judges at that time. And it was overturned by Democrats. So he's not saying that explicitly, <laughs> but I'm saying it explicitly because that's how we roll. My PhD is in constitutional law, public law, and American politics. And um, what I love to teach my students is that uh, you get some people that say, I'm not a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. The, the I'm not a lawyer clause is supposed to be some, it's either an excuse or an explanation for why you don't dig deeper on things that you perfectly well can understand. Um, but there's, there's not a lot of mystery here. Um, if you can dig here and you can understand it and, um, American politics and public law go together like peanut butter and jelly, they, they're not as separate as people like to say they are. I know we have law schools and we don't call them law and politics schools, but they are law and politics schools. In fact, most of them are run by Democrats and that's not an accident. You can stick your head in the sand on that if you want, but I'm just warning you, it's not an accident. That's not an accident. Now, just be aware of it, okay? There's a lot of power in just being aware of this stuff. So Van Dyke, page 46. I'm going to read the last sentence and then continue. Our circuit has ruled on dozens of Second Amendment cases and without fail has ultimately blessed every gun regulation challenged. What he means by ultimately is uh, if the Democrats on the three-judge panel didn't, didn't uh, rule against the individual criminalized for innocent conduct, then the on banc panel overturned the Republicans on the three judge panel for finding in favor of the individual who was criminalized for innocent conduct. So that's what he's saying. Now here's Van Dyke again. My second point is related to the first. As I've recently explained, our circuit can uphold any and every gun regulation because our current Second Amendment framework is exceptionally malleable and essentially equates to rational basis review. 
our court normally refers to our legal test as a two-step inquiry. Although it may be better understood as a tripartite binary test with a sliding scale and a reasonable fit, a, a, a test that, quote, only a law professor can appreciate, unquote. I'm on page 47 at the top. The complex weave of multi-prong analysis embedded into this framework provide numerous off-ramps for judges to uphold any gun regulation in question without hardly breaking a sweat. Given both of these realities, that one, no firearm-related ban or regulation ever ultimately fails in our circuit Second Amendment review, and two, that review is effectively standard-less and imposes no burden on the government, it occurred to me that I might demonstrate the latter while assisting my hardworking colleagues with the former. <laughs> Those who know our court well know that all our judges are very busy and it is a lot of work for any judge to call a panel decision on bunk. A judge or a group of judges must first write a call memo, and then, if the unbunk call is successful, the unbunk majority must write a new opinion. Since our court's Second Amendment intermediate scrutiny standard can reach any result one desires, I figure there is no reason why I shouldn't write an alternative draft opinion that will apply our test in a way more to the liking of the majority of our court. That way I can demonstrate just how easy it is to reach any desired conclusion under our current framework. And the majority of our court can get a jump start on calling this case on bonk. Let me just stop there for a sec. <laughs> so what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm gonna tell you what they're going to say. That's not what I believe, but I mean, I'm not writing the opinion against what I just said, but I'm, a, I'm predicting this is exactly how it's going to go because this is how it always goes. And it's so predictable. Um, but, I almost said, but God, <laughs> but uh, just five months later, after he wrote this, or actually it was after it was published, the Republicans on the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling in uh, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin in June of 2022. And so that um, got in the way of his prediction. But had that not happened, his prediction most certainly would have come true. It's worth reading anyway, because you want to know what would have happened and, and it would have happened. I mean, it, I mean, it's so predictable. It's so predictable. Hey, there's, there's second amendment cases happening right now. It's happening all over again. So, Okay. 
that way I can demonstrate just how easy it is to reach any desired conclusion under our current framework. And the majority of our court can get a jump start on calling this case and bunk and bunk. I'm hoping you understand what that means. That's just like a fancy schmancy Latin phrase for the entire court. So every active judge on the, on the ninth circuit can write an opinion and vote in an en banc. The senior status judges can write something, but they, their vote, vote doesn't count. The senior judges are the ones that are 65 and older and have elected to have a reduced load workload, uh, basically retire with the same pay, but they don't have to do as much or they don't have to do anything if they don't want to. Um, so it's it's kind of like a way for older legal well that for it's a way for them to stay active in the legal community if they want to to the extent that they want to and get the same exact pay and that way uh they don't feel like they're wasting away in a retirement home um, or just playing golf all the time or whatever they do. I don't know what they do. To better explain, oh, okay, so uh, sort of a win-win for everyone. <laughs> to better explain the reasoning and assumptions behind this type of analysis, my alternative draft below will contain footnotes that offer further elaboration. Think of them as thought bubbles. The path is well-worn and in a few easy steps, any firearm regulation, no matter how draconian, can earn this circuit's stamp of approval. Here goes, background. And this is what he's doing. He's, he's writing an opinion as if he was a Democrat. Now he's not saying it like that. And I guess it's because it's implied or something. I don't know, but it's true. There's all sorts of true things that people never say. It's still true. This is why I have such a hard time at parties and stuff. I, I don't know what you're supposed to not say and what you're supposed to say. You know, um, I I thought the rule was you just say, you, you, you know, in certain contexts, you just say what the truth is. But I learned really quickly that the rule is actually a lot more complicated. And in fact, sometimes it's exactly the opposite of that rule. Don't ask me how I found that out. Background, the rapid onset of COVID-19 pandemic disrupted every fattest facet of life. Remember, he's writing this as a Democrat, okay? So he's saying, this is, I'm gonna predict, this is what's gonna happen. <clears throat> the rapid onset of COVID-19 pandemic disrupted every facet of life across the globe and has claimed millions of lives in the early days of the pandemic pandemic when information was scarce and censored sorry i i put in censored okay he didn't say that information was scarce and panic was setting and governments were forced to take immediate action accordingly the county of ventura issued a series of health orders orders to slow the spread of the disease. These orders, among other things, required the immediate closure of all non-essential businesses, including firearm stores and firing ranges. 
the county continually updated and modified the orders and, and allowed these businesses to reopen as soon as it was safe to do so. All told, firearm stores and ranges were closed for 48 days. During that time, plaintiffs sued the county, alleging these orders impermissibly burdened their Second Amendment rights. Discussion, legal framework, page 48. The Second Amendment states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. U.S. Constitution Amendment 2. In leading... In the leading case on the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court invalidated a District of Columbia regulation that banned possession of handguns in the home and required firearms to be to generally be kept unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or similar device. <clears throat> That's from Heller, page 575. Two years later, the Supreme Court incorporated the Second Amendment against the states and invalidated a Chicago handgun possession ban similar to the one in Heller. But in invalidating the challenged regulations, both Heller and McDonald explained that the rights established by the Second Amendment are not unlimited. <laughs> I say LOL because that, that is the first thing they always point out. That is so true. They always go to the not unlimited quotation. That's the first thing they say. And that's a quote at 595 from Heller. How long is Heller? And it's at McDonald at 786. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go find I'm gonna find out where that occurs in, in Heller. I'll be right back, okay? Okay, I'm back. Yeah. So it does reference the not unlimited part uh, early in the, the decision. It's in the syllabus, of course. Um, but that's the first thing that they mention. They don't mention anything else about it. They don't mention that the, the plaintiff was black and, and McDonald and uh, that the police said, hey, trust us. Uh, they don't mention that Dick Heller, the plaintiff, was a police officer and and the government was saying that he could uh, have a gun for self-defense at work, but he couldn't have one at home for self-defense. I mean, they don't mention any of that. They just mention it's not unlimited. That's the first thing they say. And the reason they say that is because that, that's what they want to do. They want to limit it. Um in fact, they want to limit it because they believe that the only thing that the Second Amendment has is limitations on your right to keep and bear arms. All you have to do is read the dissent in that case, where the Democrats were going on that. And if you think I'm wrong about that, tell me in the comments. All right. Judge Van Dyke. Our circuit, like most of our sister circuits, have discerned from Heller and McDonald a two-step framework analyzing Second Amendment claims. This is me, really quick. Five months later, the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, no more two-step frameworks. I think I've. this is the third episode on this topic and with this guest, and I've pointed that out multiple times in each episode. But 
it's important to read this so that you remember what the arguments are and what they tried to do, okay? And if it wasn't for Republican president and Senate, this is what would be the law. Our circuit, like most of our sister circuits, have discerned from Heller and McDonald a two-step framework. I have to read footnote one because we're about to switch, flip the page and footnote one, I'm not going to leave footnote one behind. Footnote one, we really like this not unlimited language from Heller and cite it often and enthusiastically. <laughs> A bunch of citations where the not unlimited stuff is front and center. One might conclude it is the driving force in our circuit's Second Amendment jurisprudence. At step one, our court looks to see if the challenged law burdens conduct protected by the Second Amendment by examining the, quote, historical understanding of the scope of the right, unquote. That's Sylvester quoting Heller at 625. 821 at Sylvester. If the law is outside the historical scope of the Second Amendment or falls within presumptively lawful regulations, the law is upheld. I'm on page 50. If the law does not implicate conduct protected by the Second Amendment, then the court must continue to step two and determine which level of scrutiny to apply. The appropriate level of scrutiny depends on, one, how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right, and two, the severity of the law's burden on the right. <laughs> A law that destroys the Second Amendment right is unconstitutional under any level of scrutiny. A law that both implicates the core of the Second Amendment and severely burdens that right is subject to strict scrutiny. All other laws are subject to intermediate scrutiny. Here's footnote two. We refer to, uh, to strict scrutiny as a theoretical matter, a thought experiment, really. Our court has never ultimately applied strict scrutiny to any real life gun regulation. Page 51. Okay, I got to take a break here. Hold on a sec. Hey, I'm back. I just had to make my wife breakfast. She's sick. And uh, so I had to whip her up some breakfast. We're in uh, Tennessee right now. I usually record from California behind enemy lines, but uh, I'm back here. Uh, Heather's uh, mom grew up on a farm and we're just outside the farm right now. So I'm back on page 51 with uh, Lawrence Van Dyke, our special guest today. B, application A, step one. We begin by first deciding if the order's burden conduct historically protected by the Second Amendment. Such historical analysis is not easy, and the courts of appeals have spilled considerable ink in trying to navigate the Supreme Court's framework. Remember, He's writing this as if he was a Democrat. So 
Yet history suggests that delays in taking possession of a firearm was not considered a substantial burden on the Second Amendment. Quote, before the age of superstores and superhighways, most folks could not expect to take possession of a firearm immediately upon deciding to purchase one. Uh, as a practical matter, delivery took time. Our 18th and 19th century forebears knew nothing about electronic transmissions. Delays of a week or more were not the product of government regulations, but such delays had to be routinely accepted as a part of doing business. Unquote. That's from Sylvester at 827. That's the Ninth Circuit uh, re-establishing the 10-day waiting period after it was struck down at the district court. Even with this history as a guide, however, we are unable to definitively rule on the historical pedigree. Page 52 of the county's orders. The parties did not brief the historical contours of regulations like these, and for good reason. The complexity and novelty of the challenges raised by COVID-19 are not easily mapped onto the 18th or 19th century practices and understandings. Just me. He's writing this as if he was a Democrat, okay? And I have to keep saying that. Hopefully, you know, you, you got it. Uh, therefore, we elect to follow the well-trodden and judicious course of assuming rather than deciding that the regulation at hand burdens conduct protected by the Second Amendment. Here's a footnote three. Here's the deal. Whenever we think the history helps us in upholding the regulated conduct, uh, the challenged regulation, we're happy to rely on it in step one of our test. But most of the time, the history either doesn't help us uphold the gun regulation, is indeterminate, or is just really hard to evaluate. So usually we just skip over step one of our two-step test by assuming the challenge regulation burdens Second Amendment protected conduct. But that's okay, because the real beauty of our two-step test is its amazing flexibility at the various stages of step two in balancing the government's asserted interest versus the claimed impact on the core of the Second Amendment. <laughs> End of footnote three. And we are on page 53. Step two. Assuming without deciding that the orders burden conduct protected by the Second Amendment, we must now determine which level of scrutiny applies. Again, this is determined by looking at, one, how close the law comes to the core Second Amendment right, and two, the severity of the law's burden on the right. We have explained that uh, intermediate scrutiny is appropriate when a challenge regulation does not place a substantial burden on Second Amendment rights. Here, we can't say the orders imposed a severe burden on anyone's ability to exercise their Second Amendment rights. The orders only temporarily delayed the sale of firearms and use of firearms at firearm rate ranges, which is a far cry from the complete and permanent ban of handguns as invalidated by Heller. Moreover, we have already upheld government regulations 
that result in the temporary delay of an individual's ability to take possession of firearms under intermediate scrutiny. That was the Sylvester case. And here, as in Sylvester, the regulation does not prevent, restrict, or place any conditions on how guns are stored or used after a purchaser takes possession. Let me go back to the previous page. <laughs> Excuse me. On page four. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, footnote four, page 53. Footnote four, it is important to recognize that all the real work in our Second Amendment test is done right here. First, notice how much discretion this test gives us judges. There is so much flexibility in deciding whether anything short of an outright permanent ban, which nobody is dumb enough to enact anymore, places a severe burden on the Second Amendment. We can always point to stuff that isn't banned in concluding that this particular regulation isn't a substantial burden. And second, once we've concluded that a challenge regulation does not place a substantial burden on the Second Amendment rights, it's really game over. A regulation that we've already determined does not substantially burden the Second Amendment can be upheld easy peasy under our watered down intermediate scrutiny test. That's the end of footnote four. Remember, he's writing this as if he was a Democrat. That's the whole point of he's saying, this is what you're going to do. I'll just write it for you because this is what you're going to say. And again, I'm saying he doesn't say Democrats versus Republicans, but I'm saying it because it's true. And it's like the most obvious thing. It's like apple trees produce apples. It's It might be impolite to say that, but it's true. All right, here we go. Page 50, the next page. Here's footnote five. Severe is a strong word and a real workhorse when italicized. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, finally... A delay in acquiring a firearm is hardly a foreign concept to California residents. As Sylvester explained, California generally requires firearm purchasers to undergo a background check in which the California DOJ has the authority to delay the delivery of a firearm for up to 30 days in order to complete the background check. Remember what I was, this is me. Remember what I was saying, the first part of this section, the first part, the first episode, December 21st, that I posted. I told you the 10-day waiting period is not really a 10-day waiting period. It's minimum 10 days. They can go up to 30 days. And they did during this time. They did. And I'm glad he says this. Glad he actually points it out on page 54. Here's footnote six, another one of our favorite tricks. Once you frame Heller as speaking only to complete and total bans, it's easy to sidestep its holding. All a judge has to do is pretend the Supreme Court would have allowed anything short of DC's drastic prohibition in Heller instead of viewing Heller as easily correcting and especially egregious 
constitutional violation. It's a wonderful footnote. I would like to add, Heller was 5-4. So the language in that footnote of easily correcting an especially egregious constitutional violation, I don't know if I'd say easily, politically. It's a razor-thin majority, and it's rather frightening that it took a Supreme Court decision to correct an especially egregious constitutional violation that would have been upheld by four of the nine members of the Supreme Court. That's frightening. That's frightening. Razor thin. Doesn't get any more razor thin than that. Okay. Bruin is 6'3". But that 6-3 was increased because of, well, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, Lindsey Graham, and I could go on and on. You don't believe me? You Look it up. Look it up. And, of course, Trump. So the name that can't be mentioned. Page 55, we conclude, therefore, that the orders do not severely burden any constitutional uh, Second Amendment right uh, implicating the core of the Second Amendment. So intermediate scrutiny is appropriate. C, intermediate scrutiny. Applying intermediate scrutiny, we require that the government's stated objective to be uh, significant, substantial, or important, and two, a reasonable fit between the challenge regulation and the asserted objective. The first prong is certainly met here. The Supreme Court has stated that, let me go ahead and quote footnote seven. Sure, the typical delay in Sylvester was much shorter than the almost two month delay here, but this is merely a difference in degree, not kind. So we don't think the difference is so severe, italicized as to merit strict scrutiny. <laughs> Uh, the, this is great. It'd be interesting to insert any other constitutionally protected right, like, for example, the right to an abortion. I mean, at the time. What what if there was a two-month delay in that right? You know? I mean, they had a hissy fit when it was a 24-hour waiting period with the Casey issue. I think that was Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1988. Man, they had a hissy fit. They they had a meltdown. 24-hour delay. Are you kidding me? No, I want an abortion now. Now. Uh, what if it was a uh, right to an attorney? Could you be delayed two months for that? What about the right against self-incrimination? We're just putting, you know, we're putting that on pause for two months. <sighs> the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to not have troops quartered in your house, the Third Amendment. How many of you guys know the Third Amendment? It's only two months. Come on. What, what could go wrong? <clears throat> Intermediate scrutiny. 
Applying intermediate scrutiny, we require the government, okay, have an important right in there to be an uh, important objective and reasonable fit. First prong is certainly met here. Oh, wait, sorry. Footnote eight. Got so excited. Woo, hard work done. All It's all downhill from here once they say intermediate scrutiny. That's footnote eight. Uh, footnote nine. The first prong is always met in Second Amendment cases. Guns are dangerous after all, and the government's interest in ameliorating such danger is always important. But at first, we were worried this case might be a problem because the regulations here don't really have any nexus to the dangerousness of guns. But COVID-19 is dangerous too, so that substitutes nicely. <laughs> this is great. Okay, the first prong is certainly met here. The, the Supreme Court has stated that, page 56, stemming the spread of COVID-19 is unquestionably a compelling interest. And petitioners do not claim otherwise. What petitioners do challenge is that the orders are not a reasonable fit with the stated objective of slowing the spread of COVID-19 since other stores remained open while firing arms, firearm stores and ranges were closed. But this argument misconstrues intermediate scrutiny. The intermediate scrutiny test is not a strict one. We have said that intermediate scrutiny does not require the least restrictive means of furthering a given end. Um, here's footnote 10. We've really gotten a lot of mileage out of this concept. One might think that because the first prong, government support and interest, will always be met in Second Amendment cases because guns are inherently dangerous, that the reasonable fit part of the test would take special significance. But thankfully, the opposite is true. We've been able to water down the fit part of the test for Second Amendment cases to such an extent that many of our judges have been forced to distance our Second Amendment case law from the First Amendment case law, which was supposedly, supposedly borrowed. What a great point. I, I made that same point last episode. I was trying to prepare you for this. To be sure, the First Amendment and the Second Amendment differ in many important respects, including the text and purpose, and the analogy is imperfect at best. That's great. That is great. The state, I always want to re read that in a German accent when, when Democrats say that. Der Staat, the state is required to show only that the regulation promotes a substantial government interest that would be achieved less effectively absent the regulation. Okay, page 57 at the top. We're almost done. The orders in preventing employees and customers from interacting indoors during the COVID-19 pandemic clearly promotes the county's interest in slowing the spread of COVID-19 more than if no such orders were issued. Plaintiffs argue that Ventura County failed to meet this standard because it did not offer any evidence connecting the spread of COVID-19 to firearm retailers or firing ranges. But this again places too great a burden on the county. Localities must be allowed a reasonable opportunity 
to experiment with solutions to admittedly serious problems. And this is even more true when faced with a global pandemic, especially in the beginning days of the COVID-19 pandemic, the type of hard evidence plaintiffs demand was simply not available or at a minimum rapidly evolving. Here's footnote 11. I know this sounds a lot like rational basis review. Rational basis review is the lowest of the tiers of scrutiny and, and the government always wins because it's basically a, a test you apply when the government wins. Um, it, it's uh, protecting the government and what they do. And the court views its job as protecting the government in what it's doing when it applies rational basis review. Okay, just FYI. After all, this footnote 11 still, after all, if a government interest would be achieved more effectively absent the challenge regulation, it's hard to see how the regulation would survive even rational basis scrutiny. I have an LOL there. But trust us, this is heightened scrutiny. So very heightened. <laughs> Uh, I had to actually show the viewers. I, I was so happy. So uh, this is just great. Page 58. Plaintiff's demands are also inconsistent with our case law. When officials are forced to act in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties, their latitude must be especially broad. I'm going to just point out here... I've said it probably like half a dozen times uh, the last three episodes, but um, when actually the last seven, when I'm reading through, I'm not always telling you when he's quoting sources and these legal sources are all over the place. So just FYI, he's quoting a lot and I'm not always saying quote and end quote. back to Judge Van Dyke. But this is not to say Ventura County acted irrationally. There is a clear and straightforward logic underlying the orders. Limit to the extent possible any interactions that could facilitate the spread of COVID-19. These orders reflected the then current scientific understanding of COVID-19 as reflected in the social distancing requirements and the closing of non-essential businesses. And this court has repeatedly allowed common sense to undergird a government's evidence when justifying a regulation in the Second Amendment context. <clears throat> Page 59. There's a footnote 12. Again, it doesn't matter much what we say here. Once we're allowed to effectively balance competing interests under our Second Amendment intermediate scrutiny, it's so easy justifying a regulation that we could easily just delegate this part of the opinion to our interns. 
I've never read a, a an opinion like this before. <laughs> that's that's footnote twelve. Page 59, like every locality in the United States, Ventura County was forced to rapidly respond to an unprecedented pandemic. As the death toll for its citizens continued to rise, the county temporarily closed firearm stores and firing ranges, but lessened and then eventually withdrew those restrictions when the pandemic allowed. Notice how much agency this pandemic has. It's like the pandemic is a thing and it, it's doing stuff. It's not the government that's doing stuff. It's the pandemic that's doing it. That's what I love about this. He's got it down perfectly. Plaintiffs may disagree with Ventura County's decisions, but that's not our job. Now, with the benefit of hindsight to dictate what orders we would have found best, Local officials should not be subject to second guessing by an unelected federal judiciary, which lacks the background, competence, and expertise to assess public health and is not accountable to the people. For these reasons, we affirm the district court's dismissal of plaintiff's complaint for failure to state a claim. You're welcome. Wow. Page 60, it ends. Oh, it's just so good. So good. Yeah. There's another concurrence here. Um, and we could read it, but we're not going to today. Um well, it's the end of uh, 2023, and um, I'm going to go ahead and start producing my next episode. And I'm, I'm on a public health kick. I, I think the next episode is going to be um, a special guest I'm reaching out to, uh, who his name is, his last name is Peckham, and he, he was on the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court. And so... Um, reaching out and going to have him on the podcast uh, coming up. I'm really excited about that uh, re regarding uh, a decision that he wrote in Lochner versus New York, 1905. And I'm really excited about having uh, Mr. Justice Peckham on there. And uh, we'll have some discussion with uh, hopefully Oliver Wendell Holmes and Justice Harlan. Uh, who, uh, I mean, these guys are not on the Supreme Court anymore, um, but it's exciting to uh, to be able to have access to what they said back then and, and what they believe and uh, interact with um, the issue of public health versus individual rights. So we're, we're excited about that. I, I know I am. And thanks for joining me. Thanks for um staying with the Republican professor through 2023. We'll see you in the new year. Happy new year.